Welcome to the Political Economy Podcast. I'm your host, Jim Pethokoukas of the American Enterprise Institute. Each week, I feature a lively conversation with experts on some of the most important economic and policy questions of our time. If you enjoy this podcast, please consider rating and reviewing it on iTunes, Google Podcasts, or Stitcher. Ratings and reviews really help with the podcast visibility, and I always appreciate the feedback. Thanks, and on to the show. In the aftermath of the Trump tax cuts, the budget deficit has gotten larger, and economic growth has been struggling in response to the trade war and now the spread of the coronavirus. Some people, including the president, have begun advocating for more tax cuts or some other form of stimulus. At the same time, there are two viable candidates left in the Democratic presidential primary with two very different plans to increase taxes. So what can we expect our tax system to look like going forward? I'm pleased to discuss this with Kyle Pomerleau. Kyle is a resident fellow on federal tax policy here at AEI. Previously, he was the chief economist and vice president of economic analysis at the Tax Foundation. Kyle, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Uh, there's been a lot of talk lately with uh, concerns about the impact of the coronavirus on the economy, uh, that the government needs to do some sort of stimulus, uh, fiscal stimulus. Last time we heard about that was maybe 2009. Uh, the president tweeted about a payroll tax cut. There have been a variety of other ideas about just sending checks to people. I believe former Obama economist Jason Furman had a a editorial about that. So what do we know about the impact of those kinds of sort of stimulus plans which involve taxes? And which of those sounds good to you, if any? Yeah, so so I think with the coronavirus specifically, we might be dealing with something that's a little harder to address than just straight checks. I mean, the big challenge with something like a payroll tax, um, one, you're cutting taxes for those who are working. So if people are losing their jobs due to the coronavirus short term, payroll tax cut may not be the best thing. Um, but the se- second issue is if you think so aggregate demand is going down, people aren't spending enough because of the coronavirus, you have to wonder, does a tax cut or sending checks really address that? Because if I'm staying home because of the virus and someone gives me $100 or $500, that might not induce me to go to the mall and spend the money because I'm not going to the mall because I don't want a disease. I'm not staying home because I don't have any money. Um, so there's a question there. I think where um, lawmakers, federal government needs to think about addressing this is maybe on the business side. Um, so a business may in the short term be uh, low in liquidity or cash um, and may need to borrow some money. Lower interest rate rates may help there. So this is where the Federal Reserve may be able to step in. Um, but on the tax side, I think um, there may be a limited benefit. Um, but to the extent you think people are going to be losing their jobs, I, I think Jason Furman's idea of you know, cash to people may be um, helpful there. Right. I mean, is there a way of targeting tax policy toward toward business, whether it's small businesses or of a certain size or in a, in a certain sector that may be more, uh, uh, you know, prone to, um, you know, getting hurt if people are, you know, don't want to travel and so forth? Yeah, it's possible you could do something that's industry specific, um, but I think the, the Fed addressing it first seems like a good step. I mean, to some extent, you may just see some slowdown that you can't avoid um, because of a reduction in people you know, wanting to stay home. At that point, after that's over with, I mean, 
stimulus could help to have the economy catch up to where it was supposed to be before the outbreak happened. Um, and the, yeah, and that's something that that could be done. Um, now, the timing politically is a little rough for, say, the administration. They don't want to see any sort of slowdown because the run-up is to an election. Um, so you'd want this to be over as quickly as possible, or you want it to be avoided altogether. Um, but I don't know if that's possible. We may just see a slowdown no matter what. Well, we, we, we have tried this fairly, well, it seems to me fairly recently. We had in 2008, there was a tax cut stimulus. It was a rebate to people. And then there was also a tax component to the um, Obama stimulus plan in 2009. How are they different? And do we have any good research on the impact? Yeah, so I, I'm not completely familiar with the research area there. But if I recall correctly, we're talking about one, a temporary payroll tax cut. We're also talking about the making work pay refundable tax credit part of the stimulus there. Um, the ideas behind those was to put extra cash in people's pockets um, to stimulate the economy. Again, I think it's a little bit of a different world. I mean, one, you're talking about a slowdown of the broader economy where you know people are a little worried about um, their well their financial well-being, so they're spending less, and that's creating a slowdown comparing it to a slowdown caused by people worried about going out in public and catching a disease. What is the democratic theory of the case on taxes right now? Uh, we had, we've had this democratic primary, and perhaps the one common element to the tax plans is they want to raise a lot of tax revenue uh, from the richest Americans and from business. But of course, what's weird is that this urge to raise taxes a lot is coming at the same time that uh, a lot that, you know, some economists at least say, you know, deficit at current levels is not worrisome. It actually could be a lot higher. It's not worrisome. Yeah, we're also picking this time to say we need to raise taxes a lot. Uh, so I'm not sure if Democrats want to raise taxes to pay for their programs uh, or is it more kind of a just to try to reduce wealth inequality in some way, if it's a punitive measure. What do you think they're thinking? It, it might be a little bit of everything. So we see arguments that income inequality or wealth inequality may be slowing the economy to some degree because there's not enough money in the pockets of low-income individuals. I'm I'm somewhat skeptical of that argument, but you've seen that, and you know, that points towards... You know, punitive measures that may take money from one group and give it to another. So that's where you may have your wealth tax and such like that. Although some proponents of the wealth tax have stated that they don't actually think the wealth tax in and of itself is pro-growth. It really is what you do with the money. Um, and that would be, I think, the second argument here is that federal government needs additional revenue to finance new social programs, and these are a little different than, say, a one-time infrastructure package or a small increase in spending. We're talking about things like Medicare for All or very large social programs that require dedicated financing over the long run. You would need revenue for those, and that's where you get these large financing plans for Medicare for All, big income tax increases, big wealth tax increases. It seems that some... Uh some Democrats. Well, I looked at Joe Biden's tax plan. Let's get down to who are the, you know, the two finalists here. 
uh, we have Joe Biden's tax plan. They have Bernie Sanders' tax plan. Joe Biden's tax plan to me looks like just kind of a a bigger version of what we've seen from Democratic candidates in recent years, you know, on, on steroids, so to speak. Um, there's nothing. I don't, I don't know if there's maybe you might know more about that than I do. Doesn't there doesn't seem to be anything particularly novel. It's the kinds of things Democrats have been saying, where Sanders wants to do something different. I mean, Bernie. I mean, Biden's not talking about a wealth ta- tax. Have you ta- have you had a chance to take a look at the, either of those tax plans? Yeah. yeah. So th- I think you're right that you look at the two finalists in the Democratic primary. It's two different visions of the size and scope of government, where Biden, I think, is it's a little bit more than what we saw last time with Hillary Clinton. Um, her tax increase, just to put some numbers to it, she was looking for about $1.3 trillion more federal revenue over 10 years. Biden is looking for about $4 trillion. So it's a larger tax increase. Um, but I think things just in the Democratic Party overall have shifted somewhat, and there is, you know, a sense that, oh, we need a little bit more revenue than we did before. I mean, to be fair to that argument, you know, Trump did just cut taxes by about one and a half, two trillion dollars. So from that, from the pre-tax cut baseline, you know, Biden isn't asking for too much more than Hillary Clinton is. Uh, and then on, you know, for Sanders, a we're not seeing much new from him except the wealth tax. Um, but his vision of the government have, of the federal government has always been different. Look back to 2016 again. I mean, Sanders was proposing about a 15 trillion dollar tax increase. This time around, it's 25 trillion. So he's he's up so, the I mean, game so a that, little. Bit. That 25 trillion. Can you? Is that an apples to apples comparison to Biden's four? Um, I think so. the The twenty five trillion is based on numbers that the Sanders campaign has put forth. But so it's over ten years. It's over ten years. Biden's is also over yes, ten years. So yeah. So so four to twenty five. Big difference. What, do you happen to know? And if you don't, um, I'm kind of quizzing you here a little bit. What how what is the current federal tax revenue over ten years? So it's it's close to fifty trillion dollars. Right. So over the next ten years, the government will take in about fifty. Yes. And Sanders wants to take in about seventy five. Seventy five. Yes. Well, that is more. Yes. That's a lot. That, that's yes. a lot. Taxes <laughs> would go up <laughs> under his. That, 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 that seems. And it's it's not shocking because he wants to shift a large piece of our economy under the federal government uh, government's control, and that's the health care system. I mean, most of this is his shift to Medicare for all. Um, that would be, that's a sizable chunk of his plan. That alone costs, um, well, I, I actually, it costs more than what he's actually bringing in in revenue. That's a big question in his right. plan overall is whether he's actually raising enough revenue to accomplish the goals that he wants to, and I don't think he is yet. Um, the big problem is he's missing one fundamental tax that all the other European countries have that allow them to raise a lot don't of revenue. Kyle. I, want, don't, yeah, don't I can't Kyle. How dare I? <laughs> I'm going to say it for you because I, I care about your reputation of yeah. value-added tax. Yes, yes. That, that is the one that, that Sanders is so far missing in his plan that would get him, I think, closer to um, this European welfare state he's looking for. I, right. So that's, that's how Scandinavia does it. That's how, yes. that's how they finance uh, you know, their, their big welfare state. And I remember it always wasn't so off limits for Democrats to talk about a value-added tax. 
Um, I, I certainly can remember over the past decade where Democrats said that you know that's where we need to go. Now it just seems to be completely. Is it complete? Maybe my perception is that they're just not talking about it at all. That so much of the focus is on how well um, the top one percent have done. That 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 needs to be where the taxes happen. That and corporations. Yeah, I think there's one senator that on the Democratic side that has a proposal for a value-added tax, is Senator Ben Cardin. But you're right. Other than that, especially in campaign land, there's little discussion of a value-added tax out there. Um, I think candidates avoid it because there's a sense that it is a regressive tax. And in a time when when candidates only want to talk about reducing income inequality, making the tax code much more progressive, they're steering away from things where the taxes that may muddy that somewhat. But, but if you if your if your economic theory of the case is that we're in a period of secular stagnation and there's not enough demand from the 99%, in that situation doesn't taxes on on wealth and high income make more sense than a value add tax and maybe you know, maybe if Scandinavia was, you know, moving to a big welfare state today, they wouldn't do it because they'd be worried about secular stagnation and that you need to have more regular people spending money. So you can't put a tax. All the taxes should focus on people who aren't spending, rich people, and on businesses who aren't investing. So, so maybe this, maybe the economic situation is different, and the VAT is no longer appropriate for where we are. Yeah, I, this kind of gets back to what I mentioned before. If we're in a situation where demand is low and we're in a world with secular stagnation, I mean, why bother with mar- with tax increases at all? Just increase spending um, in ways that accomplish this goal. When we start talking about big programs, though, that require permanent financing, you know, then the question is, what's the most efficient way to raise federal revenue? And, you know, I'd put forth the case that maybe the wealth tax is not and something more, something broader like payroll tax or value-added tax would be better, uh, a, a better and more sustainable uh, source of revenue um, for a Medicare for all or um, paid family leave or s- something like that. What do you feel that we can say with confidence about the impact of wealth taxes of the sort Elizabeth Warren and Bernie, Sander, uh, Bernie Sanders have talked about? Not much. I think there are two. There are two puzzles here. One is is the revenue effect of a wealth tax, and two is the economic effect. So, on the on the revenue side, and I think Larry Summers he published a nice op-ed about this that it does present somewhat of a puzzle in terms of what what sort of revenue we can expect from it. So, when thinking about an income tax, revenue estimators have a pretty okay time with this. There's administrative data out there because we have an income tax. Everyone that earns income is required to report that income to the IRS. The IRS has this great data set of income earned by individuals, by type of income, by income level, so that you can build a nice model to estimate how much revenue you'd raise from all these different proposals. Well, there's no such administrative data for wealth. Uh, Academics have tried to estimate how much wealth there is. Um, You can infer how much wealth by looking at either people's capital income. So capital income is really just the returns to wealth. So if you just make an assumption about what's the rate of return on on an asset, you can kind of back into how much wealth people have. You can look at estate tax returns. Estate 
our current estate tax is kind of a wealth tax, and you can use that to infer how much wealth there is. Or you can just send a survey out like the Federal Reserve does with the Survey of Consumer Finances and ask people. All three methods give you three different answers as to how much wealth is held by the, to- the, the wealthiest households. So depending on which data set you use, you'll get a vastly different answer for how much revenue a wealth tax would raise. Um, Larry Summers used estate tax return data, and he found that the well, that Warren's original plan would raise less than a trillion dollars over 10 years, while Gabriel Zuckman and Emmanuel Saez of University of California, they, they used income tax return data, and they got a number closer to $3 trillion over a decade. Hugely different answers. Um, so it... it it is somewhat of a puzzle because we just we don't have the tax, we don't have the data. Um, then, on in terms of the economic effect, uh, you know, wealth tax is a direct tax on saving, um, and it's a pretty substantial tax on saving if you think about it. Um, a wealth tax, what it's doing is it's taxing the value of your wealth every single year. Now, that actually in some way, or that can be equated to an income tax. Um, the one way you think about it is if I have, say, $100 of wealth and it produces a 5% rate of return every single year, but then Elizabeth Warren comes around and says, well, I'm going to tax 1% of your wealth every single year. Well, now my wealth is 1% smaller. Well, what happens to my return? My return is actually 1% lower than it otherwise would be. So a wealth tax of 1% in this case reduces my return to 4%. That's like a 20% income tax. So very small wealth taxes can be equated to very large income taxes. So it could, could be a significant impact on, on saving. It could reduce the amount of national saving. Question is, how much does a reduction in national savings translate to? When I, when I, try, that argu- when I try that argument, often I, I, it doesn't seem to really penetrate a lot of uh, people who are yeah. Democrats are on the left. They, 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 it's not, they, it sounds like they think I'm just ginning up a reason. Yeah, so, <laughs> yeah, I, I would, I would go back actually to the proponents. And they said there's of, all kind. Listen, there's all, there's so much capital in this world. There's so much savings. Is it really good? Is it really good? Are we not? Are we really, you know, starved of available capital in this world? Is it really going to make that much of a difference? So I actually think that 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 view is is right. Um, that we there is a lot of capital in the United States or, or saving. We're just sloshing through it. Yeah, there's t- there are tons of it out there in the United States, outside of the United right. States. So what difference would a, would a reduction in saving make? Well. It may not hurt um, the capital stock in the United States because ultimately saving finances investment and investment in tools and equipment make us more productive. But if saving went down in the United States, we could still get saving right. from abroad. That still imposes a People cost. love sending money to the United States. Well, they do. and But that still imposes a long-term cost to the U.S. because when, sa- when foreign savers send money to the United States – they're actually what they're doing is they're acquiring capital in the United States. They become owners of the capital stock in the U.S. So to the extent our saving goes down and capital from abroad flows in, we own less of the stuff here and we get fewer of the profits from the capital here. So our income, our national income declines. So there still is a cost, even if GDP might not change all that much, national income still may decline. In some of the work done 
um, Assize and Zuckman for Elizabeth Warren, they do address, you know, what is one of my big issues. How would this impact what what they call extreme business success, which is people starting businesses and becoming super billionaires? And, you know, I, I think I like that. I like people starting businesses that create things that people value and they get bigger and they hire lots of people and they produce more of that stuff for us. Fantastic. I mean, I don't want to get, I don't want something that's going to stop that or prevent that from happening. They didn't seem very concerned. I think their, their theory is that most of that wealth being gener- being created by, by super billionaires, the, that's after the business has started, the business has been ongoing. So you're not really hurting anything. You're sort of getting that last you know, 50 billion after, you know, sure, I think that the Google guys are worth about 50 billion each, but you know, Google's been up and running. It seems to be doing fine. Uh, so, you, you know, so you, so you let them have that first few billion and then you take the last, you know, 45 and you still, and you'd still have Google. Yeah. Yeah. There's a small kernel of truth in that if you, again, back to this idea of a wealth tax being kind of like an income tax, you know, in my example, my asset got 5% return and I subtracted one. That's like 20, proportionally, that's 20%. But let's say I get it, I have an asset and I get a 100% return and I subtract 1% off of it. That's only a 1% tax on the returns. That's, that's the logic. That's where they're coming from. So if you're some superstar and you earn these huge returns, a wealth tax doesn't hit you all that much. Um, of course, that's not everybody. But that's, that's, that's exactly, not every entrepreneur, sir. Exactly. Um, I think the concern is that you take the wealth tax, you stack it on top of the higher corporate tax, you stack it on top of the changes to capital gains taxes, and the United States overall becomes less favorable to entrepreneurship and risk-taking, and the total returns to risk, uh, taking the risk and uh, becoming an entrepreneur go down so you get less of that activity. And this has to do not just with the structure of taxes, but the overall level of taxes in the United States. Um, that when we think of the returns to entrepreneurship, we may think of it's actually what may matter is the total return to some sort of investment rather than, say, the marginal tax rate. And you know, keeping taxes low, the U.S. is a somewhat low-tax country, um, that's where we can have some advantage in entrepreneurship and risk-taking. The U.S. is a low-tax country. Is it an efficiently taxed country? Not necessarily. There are a lot of things wrong with the current tax, the ta- current tax system. So I'm, I'm glad that everyone's talking about tax um, because there are lots of things still wrong with it, even after we've Trump's had a big, ta- had a big tax reform. Big tax reform. There are still lots of there's still lots of work to be done, um, and a. This is actually something the Trump administration has an opportunity to talk about. That you know, you know, we we started the process. We can continue the process of fixing the tax system and making it better. Um, but I think we we don't know exactly what they're going to do. They're currently talking. You worry that some of those fixes may be unfixed. So that yeah, so that's that's a possibility. So looking at some of the Democratic candidates, they one of the themes of at least Biden's campaign, and I think um, Sanders' campaign too, is undoing the Trump tax cuts or the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act. And you know what specifically? What do they mean? Raising the corporate tax to either twenty eight percent for Biden or thirty five percent for Sanders, um, changing the treatment of capital assets in the United States. Um, the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act accelerated 
added depreciation, which reduces the marginal tax rate on new investment that encourages a larger capital stock. Sanders wants to not only reverse that, but to go even farther in the opposite direction, lengthening asset lives and raising the effective tax rate on investment in the United States. So there is a there is a risk there that um, some of the things that you'd call improvements in the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, and by all means, the law is not perfect, but there are, are improvements that there are, there is discussion about reversing some of those. If I was to look at all the uh, Democratic tax plans, the one thing I would glean from those plans is that they do not believe that uh, the level, the tax rates, whether it's on rich people and certainly on corporations, really matters for economic growth. It's sort of their businesses are going to do what they're going to do, and it really did. so. Let's let's raise taxes on them so we can get more revenue out of them. But don't you, but they're still going to keep they're still going to keep investing, and they're still going to keep buying other companies. Uh, rich people keep doing whatever rich people do. They just don't think tax rates matter. That's that's kind of what I'm getting from them. I think you could make the case that this is definitely Sanders, that that you look at his tax plan and you look at especially all the tax increases on saving and investment um, where you could see some negative response. I don't know if Sanders thinks that those taxes will have any effect on investment or saving. Biden, on the other hand, I think you might be right about this, that we're more likely to see at least some thought go into his tax increases to the economic costs of them. And you see this already that he has, he wants to raise revenue from, say, limiting itemized deductions, broadening the tax base. He's not just simply raising rates across the board willy-nilly to get revenue. There is some thought into the structure of the like, tax system. It looks like someone who is a mainstream economist had a role in putting that plan together. That's that what it looks like. Yes, it, it does. It does. That there, there is some thought to how this, this plan could affect incentives to work, save, and invest, and that minimizing the, the, the harms of taxation it, to some degree went in there. Uh, what can we say with some degree of confidence about how corporate tax rates and how capital is treated how that affects investment, productivity, and economic growth. Because a lot of people are going to look at those Trump tax cuts and they're going to say, the economy really didn't seem to do too much. And that was a pretty big tax cut. I guess tax cuts really don't matter. They're just giveaways to these companies. Yeah. The incentive effects of the tax, the Trump tax cuts are, say, a little bit more complicated than the Trump administration lead, leads us to believe. I mean, you, you listen to them, you know, cut taxes, Huge flow of investment and capital from overseas, and everything's going to be great. It's a little bit more complicated than that. Yet they reduce, they did reduce the corporate tax rate. They did accelerate depreciation, but there are some things in the tax law that went in the opposite direction as well that were somewhat offsetting. So they've scheduled in tax increases on intellectual property, so research and development. The tax burden is going to go up on that. They made it slightly more expensive for firms that borrow money from banks to invest. Um, The tax burden on that went up somewhat. So the effective burden on capital went down, but not a huge degree. So you should expect some positive effect, but not this massive effect that, say, increases incomes by thousands of dollars. Um, But there's also confounding factors that, you know, Trump decided to run two experiments at the same time, a Trump, uh, a tax cut and a trade war. And those are 
you know, somewhat offsetting. CBO thinks they're almost entirely offsetting in some years. Um, so just looking at the economy, you know, yeah, it looks like nothing happened. Um, so it is hard. Yeah, it's hard to come to any conclusion from just ob- observing. Do you th- uh, and again, if I have it correctly, the you know one of the key mechanisms of the business uh, part of the Trump tax cuts was increased business investment. Yes, which we saw a little bit at the beginning, but then not so much since. Do you think, uh, you know, maybe this assumes that the trade war had an impact, but do you think we will see? If we're looking back five years from now to today, assuming nothing, you know, all else equal, that we'll see those tax cuts really begin to flow into that business investment. Yeah, I've, yeah, I think you're right. Look at 2018; investment was picking up. 2019, different story, but that's when the trade war was picking up. Uh, now, if you and now 2020 is going to be ruined by the, the, uh, the, the virus. The virus. So, so yeah. I have to try to tease, I, I guess, tease all that out. Yeah, yeah. So, some, research project. yeah at some point, some smart economist is going to get his hands on some data in which he can look at certain industries or certain firms that are that were exposed to the tax cut but not exposed to the trade war or not exposed to the, the this um, coronavirus in some way and he'll they'll figure out what the investment effects are but and in terms of empirical evidence looking at other countries I mean, corporate rate cuts the the evidence is a little bit more mixed but looking at something like expensing which we enacted there's good evidence from the united kingdom that that sort of provision has a positive effect on investment incentives um there's a a paper from a couple years ago by an economist mike Devereux and a few others that looked at something very similar to 100 percent bonus depreciation in the united kingdom and found that firms that were exposed to that policy did increase investment. And it wasn't just a timing effect. It wasn't just firms moving an investment right. from one year to another. There was a real pickup. So there is some evidence that some of the things that Trump, that in the Trump tax cut w- would have a positive effect on investment. Do you think going forward, Republican tax policy will look – I mean, the, the, the Trump tax cuts were, were – that was – Basically, Republican tax policy, right? Um, we cut we cut taxes on rich people. We cut taxes on uh, on business. There was uh, some stuff done on the child tax credit. That kind of mix has been fairly typical Republican policy uh, for decades. Even though I think it often gets stereotyped as just it's kind of this weird, pure supply side. It really has been more of a, yeah. of, of a mix. Do you expect, given that we've had a big tax reform, for it to continue to go in that? sort of traditional direction, or is it going to be something a little bit more populist where it's, it's focusing on middle-class tax cuts and payroll tax cuts and maybe more kind of industrial policy stuff on the business side where you're trying to help manufacturing? Where do you see it going? Yeah, that, that's, a, that's a really interesting question. We certainly see right now the Trump administration at least leaking some conversations about tax policy. And they seem to really focus on this idea of a middle-class tax cut or a 10% middle-class tax cut. You know, to some extent, it may just be the people in the administration. They may still be living in, you know, like it's 1984 before the 1986 Tax Reform Act, where there's like, there's still space to cut middle-class taxes. But you look at the income tax, the effective tax rate on the middle class is already very, very low. There's really not a 10% tax cut to be had for um, the middle class, at least speaking of the income tax. So I think it's going to run into reality at some point. Um, there's also another issue, too, is you, 
you look at the current tax system, you know, let's say we make everything permanent the way the, the Republicans want, eventually you run into some sort of fiscal reality where there is a big mismatch, at least in the long run, between spending and revenue. And that Republicans, in order to make this current tax system sustainable, will need to either think very carefully about how much spending the federal government is doing or if the level of revenue that we currently collect is the appropriate amount. Um, so that, that will have to enter the discussion at some point. Um, one company that gets mentioned a lot on corporate tax policy is Amazon, that they don't pay any taxes, and that's unfair. Is, it seems like there's a misunderstanding about about, uh, about companies and what the, and, and the tax code and what the tax code is trying to incentivize, then how that ends up translating to how much taxes pay. Why doesn't Amazon pay more in taxes? Yeah, th this comes down to just odd differences between how companies keep track of their profits for their financial statements and how the federal government tells companies to define their profits for taxes. And there are there are many reasons for these differences, but when you see headlines about Amazon or any of these companies, it really comes down to this book tax difference. That on your financial statement, your goal is to match your investments up to the revenue that it's going to create. So if an investment is going to be around for 30 years. You're going to spread the cost of that investment over 30 years and spread the revenue over 30 years because you, you know, you want your, um, you want your uh, shareholders to think you're making good profits, right? You don't want, um, you don't want to show a massive expense in a single year and show that you're losing lots of money. But that's how fi the why financial statements look the way they do. Taxes, however, are taxable income. Lawmakers have moved that more to sort of accounting on a cash basis that we're going to have you subtract out the costs when you incur them. So when you buy that machine, you're not going to be depreciating it over several years. You're going to be deducting the full cost. But you can see how that makes there's a mismatch there. If on the financial statement, you're only deducting 30% of the cost of something, but on for taxable income, you're deducting the full cost of that. You know, what you're reporting is different, so your taxable income's lower, the taxes you paid are lower, even though you may report profits in a given year on your financial statement. And there are other issues such as stock options or the treatment of losses, but there's a disconnect, and that's where it comes from. Um, that, but if you look at these things over a number of years, they seem to match up better. That you know, if you're a company like Amazon or you're any company that's growing or investing, you tend to have low federal tax liability compared to your financial, your book profits. Because, That's because the government shouldn't encourage that investing, right? Well, it's at the very least, it shouldn't get in the way right. of investing. And that's that's how I think of expensing is that allowing companies to fully deduct assets the year in which they're put in service is you know, is what you'd call the is neutral treatment. Right. You're not placing a burden on that activity. Um, so I think that that's, that's proper treatment. Book accounting, they it can it can be whatever. It's just the taxable income. Um, I think is heading in a in a good direction in terms of um, expensing and the treatment um, of capital investment. My guest today has been Kyle Pomerlo. Kyle, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me. Mm -hmm.